All right, so this evening we will be, uh, for the most part, in Numbers 21. Last time we were together, we were in Numbers 20, a very uh, significant chapter in the book of Numbers. Theologically speaking, uh, four things happened in Numbers chapter 20. So uh, Miriam, Moses' older sister, died, and then there was the incident with the water from the rock at Mirabah uh, that subsequently uh, excluded Moses from the promised land, which we uh, talked about last time. There was the interaction with Edom, uh, where uh, they were not the Israelites were not allowed to pass through Edom, uh, and we will see some implications of that this evening. And then the death of Aaron, Moses's older brother, as well. And I mentioned last time that Numbers chapter twenty begins for us the fortieth year of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. So uh, the the generation of Israelites who had grumbled against God uh, ten times, which we saw back in Numbers chapter 14, uh, that, that generation has now uh, died off. We can see Miriam and Aaron as being a part of that generation. And uh, so we're be beginning this, this 40th year of wilderness Wandering, So that is where we are, the Israelites, as we pick up in Numbers chapter 21, are on their way back toward the land of Canaan. So they were there back in Numbers 13 and 14. The spies went in, and uh, the, the people of Israel chose at that time not to go in because of unbelief. And now, 40 years later, the new generation of Israelites is approaching Canaan again. And what we will see, most, most people think that the conquest of Israel over their enemies is what is described in the book of Joshua. And in a sense, that is true. But what I want us to see tonight is that the conquest of the land that God promised to Abraham begins in Numbers chapter 21. That's one of the things I want you to see tonight. And then the second main uh, thing that we will see this evening is that uh, this, this issue of the fiery serpents and the bronze serpent that is raised up by Moses to bring healing to the people of Israel. We will take a look at that um, in due time and then come back to it again at the end. So let's pick up in Numbers chapter 21 beginning in verse 1. This is right after Aaron has died. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of the Etherim, then he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord heard the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites. Then they utterly destroyed them and their cities. Thus the name of the place was called Hormah. Alright, so let's stop there. This uh, three-verse episode 
here. I want to point out that the Israelites have been here before. So if you just keep your finger there in number 21 and go back very quickly to Numbers chapter 14, verse 45, the very last verse of Numbers chapter 14, you will see Hormah appears there as well. And there's, so that's the comparison, but the contrast is that at the end of Numbers chapter 14, the Israelites are defeated by the Amalekites and the Canaanites there in verse 43, because they have already rejected the land that God had promised to them as the descendants of Abraham. Um, They repented of that and tried to go take the land by themselves, and they were defeated. That was 39 years earlier. Now, in Numbers chapter 21, they are back at Hormah, And because this generation is a new generation, God gives them victory over this um, sect of the Canaanites. In verse 1, right, so we're there. uh, The Canaanites, they live in the the Negev. The Negev is the um, southern portion of the land of Canaan. It's essentially between Egypt and the Sinai Peninsula, and the land of Canaan. And so we can see that the Israelites are moving north again towards the land of Canaan. In verse 1, the word etherum basically means uh, the spies, the way of the spies. And so they're coming back um, up the way uh, that they came in Numbers chapter 13. And in verse 3 of Numbers chapter 21, Um, God delivers up the Canaanites to them and they uh, devote to destruction uh, these cities of Arad. And in verse 3, that that literally, Hormah means a devoted thing. So they killed everybody there in those cities. And so here we have a precursor to the conquest. Okay, a precursor to the conquest, which we will see more of later in the chapter. Verse 4. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. And the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. So, uh, just as a reminder, they're going around the land of Edom because back in Numbers chapter 20, verse 21, um, Edom had refused passage. Um, We will see a couple of other kings who refused passage this evening in Numbers chapter 21. Edom did not come out uh, and attack the Israelites, however. They came out simply to protect their land, and that will be a little bit different from what we see tonight. So the Israelites agree to go around Edom, which is basically south of the Dead Sea, to the east of the Negev. So the Israelites are headed east around Edom, and then they will head north along the eastern side of the Jordan River. That is where they are headed. And of course, there's some bad news here, right? Uh, At the end of verse 4 and in verse 5, this new generation of Israelites um, has become impatient and they are speaking against God and Moses. And so now we should be wondering, well, how is this going to turn out? Because the last time that a generation of Israelites did this, uh, they were shut out of the promised land. So here is how God responds. Verse 6. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, 
so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord Yahweh and you. Intercede with Yahweh that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. So uh, just a few brief remarks on these few verses, because as I said, we will come back to them uh, at the end. This is an important four verses in uh, redemptive history. But uh, we have these fiery serpents. So... Uh, we're not exactly sure why they're called fiery serpents. It might be their color. Um, it might be because when they bit the people, uh, there was burning. Uh, nonetheless, it is clear uh, that these serpents are bad business. And, uh, of course, serpents, what should be uh, swirling in your mind when you hear the, uh, the, the word serpent, is Genesis 3, of course. And uh, so we will perhaps revisit Genesis 3 a later, uh, at a later time this evening. And then uh, at the end of verse 6, many people of Israel died. However, in verse 8, Moses is told by Yahweh to make an image of this serpent and set it on a standard or set it on a pole, perhaps, your translation reads. Basically set it up as a sign. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it, he shall live. So Moses did that. He created a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And true to form, true to God's word, any time an Israelite was bitten by one of these fiery serpents, if he looked at this bronze serpent, he was healed and so lived. Verse 10. Now the sons of Israel moved out and camped at Oboth, and they journeyed from Oboth and camped at Eiyabarim, in the wilderness which is opposite Moab, to the east. From there they set out and camped in Wadi Zered. From there they journeyed and camped on the other side of the Arnon, which is in the wilderness that comes out of the border of the Amorites. For the Arnon is the border of Moab, between Moab and the Amorites. So let me stop here and just... uh, set ourselves. So again, the Israelites are traveling east out of the Negev. They go um, around Edom. And in fact, if you have a study Bible in front of you, if that's what you're looking at uh, to do the study this evening, uh, on the ES, in the ESV study Bible, uh, on page 300, uh, there's a map. If you have the latest version of the Reformation study Bible, for example, there's a map uh, on page 200. 27, where you can see uh, some of the travels of the Israelites around Edom and then north uh, on the east side of the Jordan River. Uh, On your map, if you have one in front of you, the Arnon, which is mentioned in verse 13, is itself a river that is east of the Dead Sea. And that is the border between Moab and the Amorites. Okay, so uh, if you look on, um, the Moabites live below the Arnon River, and the Amorites live above the Arnon River, 
up through past the Sea of Galilee into Syria. And we will encounter later in Numbers 21 two of the Amorite kings, namely Sihon and Og. These are very important kings in uh, the history of Israel. So in verse 14, Therefore it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, What he did in the Red Sea and the wadis of the Arnon, and the slope of the wadis that extend to the site of Ar, and leans to the border of Moab. So, this uh, book of the wars of the Lord, uh, frankly speaking, we don't know exactly what it is. If you would keep your finger in Numbers 21, and do me a favor and turn back to Exodus 17. So this is going back a couple of years in our study. Exodus 17, I want to show you something there that is most likely this book of the wars of the Lord. Exodus 17. So this is um, the battle between the Israelites and the Amalekites. And if you remember in Exodus 17, the latter portion of Exodus 17, um, Moses goes up on top of the hill in this battle against the Amalekites, and his hands were heavy. And so whenever his hands fell, uh, the Israelites would begin to lose the battle. And whenever his hands were held up, um, they, the Israelites uh, were able to overcome the Amalekites. At some point, Aaron and Hur went up with Moses and were holding his, his hands up. And so verse 13 of Exodus 17 says, So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Verse 14, Then the Lord Yahweh said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial, and recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So apparently there was a separate book that was being kept uh, by Moses that is subsequently passed on to Joshua that is called the Book of the Wars of the Lord. And here we have in verses 14 and 15 a brief excerpt from the Book of the Wars of the Lord that identifies um, this, uh, this region around the Arnon River. Verse 16, And from there they continued to Beer, that is the well where the Lord said to Moses, Assemble the people that I may give them water. So apparently God gives uh, the Israelites water here uh, as they're beginning to go up into the country of the Amorites. Verse 17, Then Israel sang this song, Spring up, O well, sing to it, the well which the leaders sank, which the nobles of the people dug, with the scepter and with their staffs. So here uh, we see some details about this well that God gives to the Israelites from which to drink, and apparently uh, the leaders of the tribes uh, were the ones who actually dug this particular well. You can see that which the nobles of the people dug. End of verse 18. And from the wilderness they continued to Matana, and from Matana to Nahaliel, and from Nahaliel to Bamoth, and from Bamoth to the valley that is in the land of Moab, at the top of Pisgah, which overlooks the wasteland. So now uh, we're in the northern part 
of the land of Moab. This is uh, slightly northeast of the Dead Sea, and it's overlooking the Jordan River Valley. Again, if you have a map in front of you or if you go into your favorite search engine and, and you look uh, for Sihon and Og or something like that, uh, you will see maps that can give you some details of what's, uh, what's going on here in Numbers chapter 21. So now we enter into the Israelite battles against the two Amorite kings. In verse 21, we will meet Sihon, the Amorite king. And then in verse 33, we will meet Og, who is the king of Bashan, which is another Amorite clan. And there's lots to say, um, research-wise, about the Amorites themselves. They were uh, many different people groups who had been around for um, centuries leading up to Numbers chapter 21. But by this time, uh, there are two significant kingdoms, if you will, of the Amorites on the east side of the Jordan River, which we will see Israel interacting with here beginning in Numbers chapter 21, verse 21. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn off into field or vineyard. We will not drink water from wells. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your border. But Sihon would not permit Israel to pass through his border. So Sihon gathered all his people and went out against Israel in the wilderness and came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. Then Israel struck him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, as far as the sons of Ammon. For the border of the sons of Ammon was Jazer. And Israel took all these cities, and Israel lived in all the cities of the Amorites, in Heshbon, and in all her villages. For Heshbon was the city of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab, and taken all this land out of his hand, as far as the Arnon. Therefore, those who use Proverbs say, Come to Heshbon, let it be built, so let the city of Sihon be established. For a fire went forth from Heshbon, a flame from the town of Sihon. It devour, devoured Ar of Moab, the dominant heights of the Arnon. Woe to you, O Moab! You are ruined, O people of Chemosh, or Chemosh. He has given his sons as fugitives and his daughters into captivity to an Amorite king, Sihon. But we have cast them down. Heshbon is ruined as far as Dibon. Then we have laid waste even to Nopha, which reaches to Medeba. So there's a lot of city names in here. Uh, many of these cities, we don't know exactly uh, where they are. This is obviously 3,500 years ago or so. But you can see here that there's this, um, this song uh, or this proverbs, uh, proverb mentioned here. And it's talking about how Sihon, the king of the Amorites, moved south into Moab and uh, devoured Moab, took over Moab. That is what is being sung about here. I'll come back to that in a second. Let's go back to verse 21. This uh, Sihon, king of the Amorites. Now, I want you. I want to set up the discussion a little bit right here, as we not just go through the the discussion about Sihon, but also for Og. If you would keep your finger in Numbers chapter twenty-one and turn back with me to Genesis fifteen. Genesis 15, an incredibly important chapter, as you know. One of the most important Bible verses appears in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Then Abraham believed in the Lord, and 
the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. And then you have in the latter portion of Genesis 15, this covenant cutting ceremony um, between Yahweh and, uh, and Abram at the time. And so uh, I just want to pick up in verse 12 and then show you something about Numbers 21 from Genesis 15. No, uh, Genesis 15 verse 12. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed four hundred years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. Clearly God here anticipating and prophesying and predicting the exodus which we saw in the book of Exodus, verse 15 of Genesis 15. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they shall return here, speaking of the land of Canaan, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And then the Amorites are also mentioned down in verse 21 of Genesis 15. So, these hundreds of years before Numbers 21, God told Abram that the Amorites would be among those nations that would be judged. And part of the reason, at least, for why the Israelites need to be enslaved and oppressed 400 years is because, verse 16 of Genesis 15, the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Well, make no mistake, by the time Numbers 21 rolls around, the iniquity of the Amorite is complete. And part of that iniquity of the Amorites, as if it's not bad enough that they were idolaters and pagans, part of the iniquity of the Amorites, which needed to be completed, this is important, listen, part of the iniquity of the Amorites that needed to be filled up before they would be judged by God and Israel is they needed, under King Sihon, to move south into Moab and to take over the Moabite territories. Now, how do I know that? Why is that important? Well, where do the Moabites come from? The Moabites come from Lot. If you remember Genesis chapter 19, the judgment of God on Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot escapes with his two daughters. And the oldest of the two daughters, actually they both sleep with Lot, if you remember that story way back in Genesis. And the older of the two daughters gave birth to a son named Moab. And he is the father of the Moabites. God was going to give the land of Moab to Israel. But he was not going to do so while the Moabites were living there. Because that, those were Lot's people. What happens now, just before Numbers 21, is that an Amorite king, someone who was not related to Abram, his name is Sihon. 
he chooses to move south and to conquer Moab, take the land away from the Moabites, and now the Israelites, as they are moving toward the promised land, they defeat King Sihon, and that is how God, the covenant God of Israel, gives the land of Moab to Israel without them actually defeating some of their kin. This is related to how back in Numbers chapter 20, um, the the reason why the Israelites did not uh, conquer and, and get angry with, essentially, and conquer Edom is because Edom is also related to the Israelites through Jacob's brother Esau. Okay, So the Israelites are not going to conquer anyone who is related to them. So Sihon, king of the Amorites, has to defeat Moab, Lot's progeny, so that Israel can go in and God can give them that land that was Moab's. And that is part of the iniquity that had to be filled up for the Amorites. Hopefully that made sense to you. Uh, We can see in verse 23 that Sihon, he's apparently a warlord type king. Of course, he's taken over Moab, as I just mentioned. And he comes out in verse 23 to Jahaz and fought against Israel. Remember I said, Edom did not come out to fight. They only came out to defend their territory. But here, Sihon comes out to fight And in verse 24, Israel strikes down Sihon with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon River to the Jabbok River. Now, we have seen the Jabbok River before. It is uh, running east of the Jordan River, almost halfway between the Sea of Galilee to the north and the Dead Sea to the south. And we have seen the Jabbok River before, all the way back in Genesis chapter 32, in the incident where Jacob wrestles with God at the river Jabbok. Okay, so same river, and now here we have come, in many ways, full circle, Israel returns to the river Jabbok by their defeat of Sihon, king of the Amorites. Heshbon, which is mentioned there in verses 25 and 26, is the capital city, most likely, uh, the place where Sihon lives. And you can see in verse 26, as I previously mentioned, that Sihon had previously taken over Moab. And I would only point out why would that be the case, Well, you can see in verse 29, this woe that is pronounced on the nation, the Moabites, And they are ruined, and you can see that the Moabites themselves were also pagan idolaters, worshipping Chemosh or Chemosh. Verse 31. After the Israelites defeat Sihon, king of the Amorites. Thus Israel lived in the land of the Amorites, and Moses sent to spy out Jazer, and they captured its villages and dispossessed the Amorites, who were there. Okay? So this is a full and complete taking over of all of the land that Sihon, king of the Amorites, was now in control of. And it goes from below the Dead Sea, on the east side of the Dead Sea, all the way up to the river Jabbok. Now the Israelites will move north. Verse 33. Then they turned and went up by the way of Bashan, 
And Og, the king of Bashan, went out with all his people for battle at Edrai, or Edrai. But the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand, and all his people and his land. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So they killed him and his sons and all his people until there was no remnant left him, and they possessed his land. So if you have that, uh, those maps or that map open in front of you, you can see that in, in your study Bible that this king of Og, he was also an Amorite king, and his land went all the way up past the Sea of Galilee into Syria. And so Og was actually a ruler of a larger parcel of land stretching almost all the way to the Euphrates River in the north. And this is significant because, as I mentioned at the beginning of the discussion this evening, the conquest of the land that God had promised Abram begins in Numbers 21. And I want to show you that here. So again, keep your finger in Numbers 21. Perhaps your finger is still in Genesis 15. I want to pick up in Genesis 15 again. In verse 15, God speaking to Abram, this part of this great covenant ceremony. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Verse 17. And it came about when the sun had set, that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. Verse 18. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, and the Kenizzite, and the Cadmonite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. Okay? And in so many ways, so many people believe that the land that God promised to Abram is the land that is restricted between the Mediterranean Sea on the west and the Jordan River on the east. But that is not what this text says in Genesis 15. The Amorites are clearly included in the land that was promised to Abram, and that land will stretch all of the way, all of the way, to the Euphrates River in the northeast. This is very important to understand. In your Bible, yes, Joshua is the one who goes west across the Jordan River into Jericho and begins the rest of the conquest of the land of Canaan. But the conquest begins in Numbers chapter 21. And for those of you keeping score at home as to whether or not God keeps his promises that he makes, that promise is completely fulfilled in 1 Kings chapter 4 under the reign of of Solomon. It's very clear that Solomon's kingdom extends all of the way to the Euphrates River. Abram, Abr the, God, the promise that God made to Abram 
is kept and fulfilled in the kingdom of Solomon. All right. Let's go back and talk, finish up this evening talking about this bronze serpent. So the bronze serpent is very important. Um, It appears two more times in the Bible after Numbers chapter 21. It appears once more in the Old Testament and it appears in the New Testament as well. And that is where we will spend the bulk of our time. I just want to mention that the bronze serpent appears one more time in the Old Testament in the book of 2 Kings chapter 18. And it turns out uh, at that time in 2 Kings 18 verse 4 that the bronze serpent needs to be destroyed by the king of Judah, Hezekiah, who is a good king uh, in Judah, and he follows in the footsteps of his father David, and he's bringing uh, reforms to the southern kingdom of Judah, and it is discovered that, uh, among other things, there is worship going on in the high places in the southern kingdom, as well as there are some of those who were worshiping the bronze serpent as an idol. And so King Hezekiah has the bronze serpent uh, destroyed, 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 4. In the New Testament, perhaps you already know where we're going. If you do not, you can go with me to the Gospel according to John, chapter 3. The Gospel according to John, chapter 3. This is the, uh, at least at the, the early portion of John 3, of course, is the relatively famous interaction between Jesus... Uh, and a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And um, Jesus says to him, uh, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus clearly doesn't understand how can a man be born when he is old. Jesus goes on to say, verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Of God. Verse 8 The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Verse 9 Nicodemus still does not understand. He says, How can these things be? Jesus rebukes him a bit in verse 10 Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know and bear witness of that which we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Verse 13, and no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. Verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So 
in the two verses prior to this great and most famous verse, John 3.16, we have a clear and direct allusion to Numbers chapter 21, the bronze serpent on the pole. Again, verses 14 and 15 of John chapter 3. Jesus speaking, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. So Jesus is clearly drawing an equivalency between himself as the Son of Man and the Son of God and the bronze serpent which was lifted up in Numbers chapter 21 to provide relief to the Israelites from the bites and the stings of the fiery serpents. So let's dwell here for just a few moments. Like the bronze serpent in Numbers chapter 21, our Lord provides deliverance from the serpent, the devil. And again, as I mentioned previously, this takes us back to Genesis chapter 3, where uh, Eve and subsequently Adam are ensnared by the devil. Okay, um, and, and there are other places in the New Testament, of course, we could talk about man's relationship to the devil, to the enemy. You think about Ephesians 2, the God of this world. You think about Ephesians 6, where the full armor of God is uh, deflecting the fiery darts of the enemy. Right? And so we see that just as the bronze serpent provided deliverance from the fiery serpents that were in Numbers 21, so Jesus delivers us from the domain of the devil. I also note here that um, God was the one who provided that deliverance. God was the one who specified that there should be a serpent put on a pole for the deliverance of his people. And so we see that God himself must also provide our deliverance, our salvation. Jesus comes and does it himself, sent from the Father. We see that in Jesus being lifted up, that the cure, listen, this is important, the cure is in the likeness of the disease. And you might say to yourself, well, how is Jesus like a serpent? What does that mean? Well, the reality of the situation is that this is pointing us to the Incarnation. Jesus must become like us in human flesh, yet without sin. So he, he becomes like us, sinful human beings, yet without sin. And so he represents the very thing, he's in the form of the very thing that is in need of rescue, and we need to be rescued from, that is, our sinful flesh. And I would just commend to you 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, right? 2 Corinthians 5, 21, if you'd like to go there. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, this great exchange from the pen of the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, He, God, made him Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
Also, back to the bronze serpent. The cure had to be lifted up. The cure, the bronze serpent on the pole, had to be lifted up. This, of course, uh, shows us the cross. Jesus Christ says, uh, John chapter 3, verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And so this points us, the bronze serpent points us to the cross. And I would also note here, you don't have to go there, but I will, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, the prophet Isaiah is talking about, uh, um, in, in Isaiah chapter 11, he's talking about the righteous branch, the shoot of Jesse, in verse 1. And in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, Isaiah says this, Then it will come about in that day that the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. That word signal in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, is the same Hebrew word as the sign or the pole in Numbers chapter 21 that the bronze serpent sits upon. And so we can see Isaiah also using this same language, talking about the root of Jesse, who will stand as a sign for all of the peoples that they might return to the son of Jesse, the son of David. Finally, as a parallel between Numbers chapter 21 and John chapter 3, I note that the Israelites merely had to look at the bronze serpent and they would live. And in an exactly analogous way, our works cannot save us. We must merely look to Jesus Christ. And look how? Well, we must look with the eyes of faith. Also again in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. We walk by faith not by sight. And so, even as the Israelites had to use their physical eyes to look at the serpent which was lifted up, that they might be saved and not die, so we also look not with our physical eyes, but with our spiritual eyes of faith at the one who was lifted up for us, the substitute for our sins, so that we will live and we will not die. So Jesus clearly sees in the bronze serpent, a type of himself. And so that is the message I want to leave you with this evening from Numbers chapter 21, the bronze serpent in the wilderness that saved the Israelites from the bites, the stinging bites of the fiery serpent. So Jesus saves us from the sting of sin by his substitutionary work on our behalf.